Well, like every Mother's Day, Father's Day, Valentine's Day, I can't get away from giving you a gift. Because I am a gift giver. I love giving gifts and getting gifts. So don't forget that one either. So the ushers are going to begin to hand out gifts we have for all the men that are in here, no matter what your age is. Um, so women, stay out of those bags. They, oh, you shared? Did you really? Oh, that was nice of you. But we have, <laughs> we have some goodies in there for you, men. Every man needs a nice, big, juicy steak on Father's Day. So in there is your steak just kind of dried up and put in a package for you. So you, beef jerky. So gnaw on that for a while. Yes, you can enjoy it. Go ahead and open it up. You can enjoy it right along with the message. But we did want to say Happy Father's Day. We have a special message for you this morning. I am so excited. I know I'm giving time for the guys to finish handing those out. All the men. All the men. Tyler, do you feel like a man now? I don't care. He's, he's digging through it. <laughs> every man, every man, every man. Got him, got him, got him. Good. Are we good? You even pass them like footballs? Everything becomes a sport to a man, doesn't it? To the, glory. to the glory. To the glory. Don't be flashing those flashlights at me. Remember that ADD kicks in and I go, squirrel, squirrel, what, 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 huh? All right. If you look through your bag, you can still, you know what you're reaching into now. Yeah. But this morning we have a special message for you. I'm so excited that I get to team preach with my husband and my oldest son, Isaiah. So if you would, please, I'm going to turn it over to Isaiah and let him open up the message for us. Welcome. Thank you. Um, So long since I've been here. I mean, it was only a couple. I know, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. Spoiler alert, Calvin and Hobbes is like my all-time favorite comic strip ever. And it's cool. Calvin will stay up there, and then we'll get to him in a minute. I do want to uh, explain that on your flashlights, men, if you look at your flashlights, it does have a passage written on it. That passage is Psalm 1. 12. I want to take a minute and I just want to read that before anything, before we jump into the message, before, uh, before my father comes up, my mother, before I continue to speak. I just want to read that because it's very, it's so important I didn't even write it down. It's right here. Hold on. Got it under a different note. Psalms 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord who find great delight in his commands. 
Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Good will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs in justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. Man, that is like the fifth time we've heard it. Already, we're not even finished with this chapter. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their dignity will be lift high in honor. And the wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. Their longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this opportunity to come here, Father God, and to speak your word. Lord, I just pray that the words that are spoken today are your words, Father God. They're not my words. They're not Pastor Brenda's words. They're not my father's words, but they are my heavenly father's words. Lord, I pray that you will open our ears to hear you, Father God. And I pray that you will open our hearts so that we can be honest to ourselves. We love you and we thank you. And all the praise and all the glory and all the honor go to you, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so I'm sorry. I'm going off script already. Mom, it is Father's Day and I can't get away without telling you guys some best dad jokes. Guys, what's the difference between a poorly dressed man on a tricycle and a poorly dressed man on a bicycle? A tire. A tire. Hey! Why do bears have hairy coats? Fur protection. Hey! What do you call a fish with no eyes? Fish. Fish. <laughs> do you remember when you would tell your dad, Dad, I am so hungry. And he'd go, hey, so hungry, I'm dead. Or you're leaving the house and go, hey, call you later. He goes, don't call me later. I am your father. <laughs> uno mas, uno mas. One more. Why did the I love this one. This was my favorite. Why did the A go to the bathroom and come out as an E? Because he had a vowel movement. Hello. I'm being way too loud for my own son, but that's okay. I do want to take a minute and thank my father for being the greatest dad I could pick. I didn't even pick you, but if I could, I would pick you. I don't usually get emotional, but my dad once told me all we did was watch sports and talk about sports, and we'd sit 
on the chairs right next to each other, and we would watch sports. And I'm just like, Dad, is this all we're ever going to do? Is this all we're going to do? Nope. And he looked at me, and he said, well, that's one more thing than I got to have with my dad. <laughs> I'm almost, I almost got it. I almost got it. Calvin and Hobbes, like I said, was my favorite, favorite comic book as comic strip as a child. I have books and books filled with comic strips of Calvin and Hobbes. This one seemed to go with the message. Calvin says, Dad, don't turn off the light. You didn't check under the bed for monsters. His dad says, huh, I'm sure. His dad says, I'm sure. His dad says, I'm sh-. If you look at the pictures, his dad says, I'm sh-. There we go. I'm sure. <laughs> great job, great job. I'm sure there are no monsters under your bed. Go to sleep. And he closes the door and he says, good night. And Calvin says, goodbye. So in the next panel, Kevin, Calvin yells underneath. He goes, any monsters under my bed tonight? The next panel, they look perplexed. Hobbes says, there's no answer. Do you think they're gone? And Calvin says, well, maybe they're just staying quiet. Keep watch over your side of the bed. Calvin screams, boy, am I full. I must have gained 10 pounds today. Maybe I'm getting a little plump. Oh, and Hobbs, playing along with the joke, says, Oh, you're bigger, Calvin, but there's no fat on you. Calvin agrees. I guess you're right. I'm getting big, but I'm still nice and lean. So in the next one, they realize uh, something under the bed is drooling. Calvin says, Start trying tying the sheets together. We'll go out the window. When I was young... I have a very active imagination. I still do. And so what it is, is always the father's job. That when you go, Dad! And come in. Dad, there's there's a monster under my bed, and I can't get up. I can't go to bed. He's going to pull me underneath the bed. It's the job of the father to then shine a light on his fears, his son's fears. And so what we're going to do is we're going to shine a light on some fears. My father, the great man, uh, the great Mauer man, (laughs) Eminem, he has searched his heart, he has prayed, he has fasted, and he has thought, what are the five biggest fears that keep men from partaking in ministry? And so what we're going to do is we're going to, my father's going to come up and he's going to read the fears. And then my mom and I, we're going to break down fears one at a time. Shine in the light. So please give it up for my father, Brian Maurer. Well, I'm going to stay right here in this spot. I'm not going to go from side to side. And I'm going to look at my paper. All right, well, the first fear that seems to stop me from getting involved in the church, doing my part in the body of Christ, is the fear of commitment. 
I, I argue with myself that I'm just too busy as it is. I don't have any extra time to do anything else. But honestly, it's just easier not to do anything more than I have to. Go to work, bring home a paycheck, eat, sleep, and repeat. Committing to the church to get involved in ministry, it will be too much, too hard, too demanding, and I don't have any extra time. That's the first fear that men face when they're looking at committing or getting involved in ministry is commitment. Come on. Who has any extra time? And as the man of the household, really, what am I expected to do? Eat, sleep, go to work, and repeat. That's it. Isn't that good enough? Well, let's just shine a light on that fear. Because if, as long as we believe a lie, we're immobilized. It's only when we know, can see, shine a light on the truth that we can dispel Remove that lie from our life. And what Brian shared with us is a lie. Because there's no ministry. I've been in the ministry over 25 years. And there's no ministry that demands all your time, all your energy, will overcommit you. Over Those are all your choices. So let's look together. Commitment, the first fear. I found an article in Christianity Today called The Lost Art of Commitment. So let me just read that to you. It says, certain characteristics are so inherent to Christianity that to neglect them is to become a walking oxymoron. A Christian without commitment is such an oxymoron. That's why... I was so disturbed when a friend shared a statement from this presidential candidate at a Christian college. When asked what has changed the most in the past 20 years with young people who are entering college, all the candidates said that young adults today are far less willing to commit to anything. Whether we are talking about career, marriage, faith, Studies back up their observation. In 2008, more than half of the people ages 20 to 24 had been with their current employer for less than one year. Although the recession has dampened this somewhat, young adults are still floundering when it comes to embracing a calling. Marriage especially has suffered. According to the U.S. Census data, young adults are marrying later than ever. In 2006, PBS did a documentary, and it gave some insight into why. Desire for adventure, career advancement, and prolonged adolescence ranked the highest. Lack of commitment is also hitting religion hard. Studies suggest that the iPod generation is choosing which aspects of the faith to adopt to create their own unique spiritual playlists. 
Among today's young adults, the unwillingness to commit is alarming. Clearly, one result of the philosophies of the 1960s and 70s are coming to full flower today. In 1979, psychologist Robert Bella conducted extensive interviews to understand what habits of the heart defined average Americans. Many had no sense of community or social obligation. They saw the world as a fragmented place of choice and freedom that yielded little meaning or comfort. They even seemed to have lost the language to express commitment to anything besides themselves. Bella called this anatological, that's a hard word, anatological individualism. The belief that the individual is the only source of meaning. Bella saw how this attitude would, in time, unravel the church and larger society. Since then, we've seen an almost uninterrupted march toward self-focus, affecting all of our institutions, but especially crippling our church, marriage, and family. The basic building blocks of society simply erode without commitment. Any sensible society must address this problem by educating people that commitment is the very essence of human relationships. At the least, we need to teach this in our churches. How can you begin as a Christian without death to self and total commitment to Jesus Christ. But beyond the ramifications for society as a whole, beyond even the obvious necessity of Christian commitment, when we refuse to commit, we miss out on one of the great joys of life. When we obsess over ourselves, we lose the meaning of life, the true meaning of life, which is to love God, serve God, Love our neighbor and serve our neighbor. Commitment. You cannot be a Christian and not be committed. It's like a divided house. It's like a state fan marrying a Michigan fan and trying to dwell in unity. It just can't happen. There's animosity. There's a divided loyalty. It can't. You would actually look at the one you love during football season and say, I don't even want you sitting on my couch. What are you doing? Now, we do let Aaron, who's Notre Dame fan, we let him in our house once in a while. But during the big games, it's like, no. Sorry. A divided loyalty. I don't. I mean, in that article I just read. It is a scary thing when you pick and choose out of God's word what you want to do. And, well, it's not a buffet. God's word, our life as a Christian, is not a pick and choose what you will. He says it's all my way or the highway. 
What way do you want to go? He says, you're either for me or you're against me. And now could you imagine looking at your father and 10 years old, 12 years old, 18 years old, 30 years old, close to 50 years old, in your parents' house and them say, you know what, as long as you're living under my roof, come on, either we've said it or heard it, you are going to do fill in the blank. Could you imagine kicking up your feet and saying, you know what, I think I'd rather have it this way. I think you're going to bring my meals to me on the couch. Uh, you're going to clean my room. You're going to go out and bring me back an allowance. And it's not going to be 20 bucks a week. I, I, I need at least 200 a week. What would you do to that child, whether child or adult child or adult adult? Would you say, get out? I love you, but get out. Yeah. You don't get to pick and choose. Commitment means you're committed. I've used it over and over again. It's like getting It's like getting married and saying to your spouse, I love you very much. I'll give you a couple hours one day a week. But the rest of the week is mine. I love you. <laughs> no, get out. Right? It's all or nothing. As Christians, little Christ, it's all or nothing. There, there's no way to say, I'm committed, but I'll choose how I commit, when I commit, where I commit, what I'll do. I'll do it on my terms. James 1, 6 through 8 says, But when you ask, can be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world, and they are unstable in everything they do. Luke 16, 13 says, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, you will be devoted to one and despise the other, but you cannot serve both God and money, or some translations say the world. You can't, which the world is serving the money. Oswald Chambers says, God does not further our spiritual life in spite of our circumstances but in and by our circumstances. When you're saying, I can't get involved because I'm too whatever, I'm too busy, I'm too whatever, I don't have any time. Brian and I was talking about this the other day. If you can't serve God with what he gave you, he's a liar. God's a liar because God says in his word, I've given you everything you need to live a godly life. So if he's only given you two hours a day because your job takes you away 18 hours a day, then he's given you two hours a day and you'll be held accountable. What did you do with those two hours a day? Or how about while you're at work? What are you doing with those 18 hours? Most of us don't work 18 hours a day. But what are you doing with those eight hours at work? He gave you the job. So he doesn't wait for you to have the perfect situation and now you have absolutely all this free time. Now you can serve the Lord. 
No, it says that he does not further our spiritual life in spite of our circumstances, but in them and by them. So what are you doing with what God has given you? Remember, compromise is a slow poison. The minute you start believing, I can't commit, I don't have enough time, they're going to ask too much, I can't do it. It is a slow poison that keeps you going backwards. I don't know how else to say that. In the old term, I don't even know if you use it nowadays, it's called backsliding. You're either going forward with God or you're backsliding. Commitment is a choice of priorities. That's it. What's important to you? A choice of priorities. When you look at your calendar, it is clearly evident what's important to you. If all it says on there is work, eat, sleep, and repeat, then that's what's important to you. Every detail of your life, whether physical, moral, or spiritual, is to be judged and measured by the cost of the cross. Is what you are living right now worth what Christ died for you to have? Commitment. Let's look at fear number two. The second fear that seems to stop me in getting involved in the church, doing my part in the body of Christ, is the fear of self-condemnation. The voices in my head immediately begin screaming at me. Who do you think you are? You can't do ministry in the church. I know what kind of person you are. You're a loser, no good for nothing. I know what you were thinking last night. Is that how a Christian is supposed to act or think? Honestly, I am no good. I do have lots of issues I am still trying to deal with. It's just better if I don't get involved. Tag your <laughs> No sin is worse than the sin of self-pity because it removes God from the throne of our lives, replacing him with our own self-interests. It causes us to open our mouths only to complain, and we simply become spiritual sponges, always absorbing, but never giving and never being satisfied. And there is nothing lovely or generous about our lives. Shame and conviction. Conviction says I've done wrong, but shame says I am wrong. Oswald Chambers, we need to make a distinction right now before we go any further, the difference between conviction and condemnation. All right, conviction says I've done wrong. Condemnation says I cannot overcome that wrong. I am identified by that wrong. So before we do anything else, make sure we understand conviction, good. Condemnation, bad. All right, congregation, here we go. Conviction, good. Condemnation, bad. Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. If I were blameless, it would pronounce me guilty. Job 
You see, what happened with Job, and I'll be very quick because it is a very long story, is Job had so much things. And God knew that Job was a righteous man, so he allowed things to happen to Job so that Job's story could be one that we could learn from. So during this uh, chapter 9 where he just says this, uh, the context is that he's sitting down with a few of his so-called best friends. His wife had already told him, rebuke God and die. Lovely wife. She was wonderful at parties. And now he's sitting down with his best friends, and he's explaining to them, listen, even if I were innocent, my own body would condemn me. It would say that I'm guilty. Who, who, who has a Facebook? I unfortunately have one. I'm sorry. I spend too much time on that stupid thing. Well, now Facebook, they saw uh, all the Time Hop app and see how much traffic they were getting. So now Facebook is now wanting you to know what you've done on this day five years ago. Come on, who looks at that notification? Don't lie. Don't, we are in church. I don't even see my wife's hands raised, but I know she looks at it. I know she looks at it. I'm calling you out, Rachel. <laughs> She's in the back. Don't worry. She's Anyway. No, but I sometimes I'm like, oh, I want to know what I did five years ago. But most of the time I read those stupid statuses that I did when I was 16, 10 years, and nine years ago, not 10 yet. Not yet. And I'm like, man, I was an idiot. <laughs> I would quote these stupid song lyrics and be like, I'm so deep, man. And like no one liked it, no one commented. I'm like, they just don't understand me, you know? They're not cool like me. <laughs> There's something now, it's so easy to reminisce. Nostalgia, uh, in my opinion, was something that we should have been like passes in the past. But now nostalgia is something that people revere. Well, I'm just nostalgic, so. Why is it that when we're about to do something great, we're reminded of our past mistakes? Because it is human nature to remind ourselves of our failures. It's human nature to deify others, to make them seem like they are the best. And it's human nature to drag ourselves through the mud. Oh yeah, uh, so-and-so's failures, no big deal. A little speed bump, they'll get over it, and they'll be right back up on stage praising Jesus like it ain't nothing. But my mistakes, no, they're mountains. I can't get over it. It is something that will always haunt me. Men, specifically when outreach is on our heart, it will become our human instinct, our natural instinct to put ourselves down. But here's the thing. Since we are called, we must work through this instinct. 
One of the greatest men in the Bible is Paul, the artist formerly known as Saul, in case you were wondering. Paul was a man who persecuted Christ followers um, with zest, really, with zeal. I mean, it was like top thing on his resume, you know, like other skills persecuting Christians right there. But the thing is, is God used Paul. Do you remember what God used Paul for? No, because you don't have a mic and I do? No. He had wrote 13 books of the Bible. He gave us the structure of modern day church. This man started countless churches, mentored countless individuals. But no, no, no. Before all that, he was killing Christians. He was taking Christians to the so-called courts that, let's not get into that, it's a whole other message. And what they would do is he would say, listen, these people aren't following Jewish law, so we got to put them in prison. And the, the worst of the worst Christians were put to death. And so, at this time, his name was Saul again, formerly known as Saul. He was on a mission. Acts chapter 9 says, Meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Jesus, shout out, whether man or woman, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? Saul asked. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless, as would I be. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hand on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, You know, I've heard reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come out here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who claim your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is chosen. I have chosen this man as an instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to all the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Even with a past like that, Paul becomes, aside from Jesus, greatest in the Bible, all the time, great, hands down. 
So with a past like that, I wanted to think, that's the guy I got to learn from on how to overcome self-condemnation. Right? Romans 8, 1. Oh, we heard it before. We've seen it on memes online, on Facebook, post it, praise Jesus, here we go, on Twitter, on Instagram. No, we see this all everywhere. Therefore, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. That's an amen. That is an amen. But we forget that that's a comma. I should have wrote it on the screen, but I'm lazy, so I didn't. That's a comma. That means it's a continuation of a verse. Because sometimes we can say, oh, I'm more than an overcomer, because that's in the Bible. We can say there is no condemnation, because I am in Christ Jesus. But we leave off the rest of the verse sometimes. Even in this case, the end of the sentence. Well, here it is. The key to overcoming self-condemnation is in the second half of the sentence. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit of life set you free from the law of sin and death. Self-condemnation is destructive. It will never allow you to achieve what you want to do. So the key, the key to overcoming self-condemnation is through Jesus Christ. The law of the Spirit of life is the regulation and activating power in the life of the Holy Spirit operating in the hearts of the believers. So, that is the key here. Before Christ, our shame and guilt overwhelmed us. But through Christ, the Holy Spirit breaks the law of sin and death and gives to us the law of life. The Holy Spirit gives us new power to break and overcome the law of sin and death. The way we can have no self-condemnation is through the law of life that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And the third fear that stops us is... The third fear that stops me from getting involved in the church, doing my part in the body of Christ is the fear of rejection. It's like in junior high playground all over again. I'm never the first one picked on a team. Everyone has their own little clubs. I can't even pass their initiations. I'm never anybody's go-to person. When they need something, I just know if I open my mouth, I'm going to say something wrong or do something wrong. And then everybody will Turn their back on me anyway. So I'll just stick to myself. Loneliness is a price I'll pay so I don't have to feel that pain of rejection. Nobody likes to feel rejection. He said, I'll choose loneliness. I'll choose loneliness instead of feeling rejected. Psalm 27.10 says, Even if my father and mother abandon me, the Lord will always hold me close. Charles Stanley, in his book Holy Ground, has this to say about rejection. In the Vietnam War, special bullets were sometimes used that caused far more physical destruction than ordinary bullets. 
The experience and fear of rejection can likewise cause far more inner trauma than most other emotional afflictions. Rejection strikes brutally at our most vulnerable spot, our sense of self, self-worth. If you have ever been rejected by another, the pain can be alleviated and the wounds healed only by deliberately embracing God's unfailing love. We all can recount stories of when at one time or another we have felt rejected. I mean, I was trying to search through my past and emotions and the history and trying to choose one, but it was like a a mirage. And uh, this great big, what are those great big poster things with all these different pictures of collage of all these different times? I'm like, how do I even pick one? But I have to tell you, I mean, all of them are are the worst in, in the self. But I'll have to tell you one, and I cannot remember how old I was, maybe maybe around 10, I'm guessing, maybe around 10 years old, and was invited to a birthday party. And I'm like, yes. And I thought, I was a, you know, I loved working out in the garage with my dad and building things. And he always had down in the basement, there was always a wood shop. And so for whatever reason, I built, and oh my goodness, is this funny. I'm actually thinking that this memory has a lot to do with Dr. Seuss. <laughs> or a, a, similar to Dr. Seuss. This is funny. I'm telling the story, and it's like, yeah, it's like little Dr. Seuss. What's that guy, the Grinch, built that little tree topper for the girl, and they all laughed at Well, it was pretty much the same thing. I remember I built something, and it had a lot of aluminum foil in it. I don't even know why. Or what it was. But I remember I built something for this girl that invited me to her party. And I really didn't know her. But maybe it was, you know, like that whole class, you know. And I just kind of got in on it. And I remember when it was time to open up all the gifts. Yeah, she was opening up the gifts and saw that. And she goes, oh, weird. And shoves it back in the box and shoves it aside. And I just kind of went, and I'm like, I want to die. You know, because I really put my all into that. And I remember I was trying to act like, you know, oh, don't let her go back and find out who made that. Because I, do, I, could, I didn't buy a card or nothing. And I was just going to say, yeah, I did that. You know, but because she didn't like it, I'm like, who did that? Who did that? But I would just remain quiet. Don't say anything. Well, finally, some mean girls, you know, found out, you know. Who it was and you know they're like you did what were you thinking and I don't remember how I left I don't know maybe Jesus just kind of scooped me up and took me home but I was like they're complete blur the rest of the day or evening or whenever I was at this party but that hurt deep to feel that kind of rejection when you lay your heart out there you know whatever it is whatever situation whether it was in ministry whether it was with a relationship, whether it was, you know, with a a group of guys at work, whatever it was. And then to feel the pain of rejection, it pulls us back and says, I'll never do that again. I'll never put myself out there again. Forget it. Walls are being built right now. Forget it. We've all felt that. We've all done that. 
And we've all made those claims. Especially if it has to do with a love. Boy, it's not, I'm never going to let anybody get that close to me again. Forget it. Rejection strikes brutally at our most vulnerable spot, our sense of self-worth. I have to admit, when I was uh, thinking about this, Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel, I think it's 9 or 10, 9 and 10, talk about Saul. And do you know, it doesn't really mention who he was before the time he went looking for his father's donkeys. His father's donkeys had walked away, and his father said, hey, grab a servant, go look for my donkeys, man. They're gone. Next thing you know, he's on his way, and the servant says, hey, I know that there's a prophet in this next town. Let's go see this prophet. Maybe he can tell us where the donkeys are. Well, God spoke to Samuel, the prophet in that next town, and said, this time tomorrow, I'm going to bring before you the first king of Israel. And so that next time, that same time, that next day, here comes Saul. And God spoke to Samuel, hey, buddy, that's him right there. And Saul comes up to him, and I, you know, you got to read the story. It's awesome. He brings him in and says, hey, I'm going to a big dinner. I want you to sit right here, the head of the table with me. As a matter of fact, I even went and told the cooks, you know, pull out the biggest, juiciest part of the steak and save it for the one that's coming, the honored guest that's coming. And Saul, over and over, he's like, what? No, no, I'll sit down here on the ground. I'm just looking for my father's donkeys. You know, I'm not, what, what are you talking about? He said, trust me, stay with me. You and I are going to talk tomorrow. Stayed with him. Finally, he shares with him. God said, you are going to be the first king of Israel. Could you imagine somebody walking up to you? Or what if God gave me a word for you and Deborah? This time tomorrow, you're going to be the next queen of England. Because she is 90. Come on, it's got to be coming close. Anyway, you are going to be the next queen of England. And here's your ticket, your plane ticket. You know, you need to head over there today. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. We could share that story. But um, he said that to Saul. Samuel said that to Saul. And then he said, oh, and by the way, yeah, God knows where your donkeys are. Don't worry about them. They've already been returned. Go back to your father's house. This is all going to happen. And then Samuel calls all of Israel before him and says, okay, now we're just going to, we're getting ready to appoint the next king of Israel. Okay, this clan. Okay, and now out of this clan. And, the, and then all this and now here's your new king, King Saul. And everybody goes, oh, where is he? Where is he? Where is he? And they start looking for him. Even the prophet says, oh, God, is he even here? God says, yeah, he's here. He's hiding among the luggage over there. They had to go get him from hiding in the luggage. I can't. I can't do that. I just, I just find donkeys for a living. I can't do this. And they pulled him up. Ta-da, here he is. He had a word from God. 
You will be the next king. And yet this self-condemnation, sorry, is that the one I'm talking about? What am I talking about? Huh? Rejection. I can preach anything. Tell me what it is. I'll do it. No, I <laughs> That sense of rejection, I'm going to stand up before them and they're going to go, him? No. We don't want him. He had a word from God. And yet that fear of rejection was in him. That he hid among the luggage and said, no, I can't do this. Saul. Joshua, over and over again. This is how the fear of rejection can be seen in those. Uh, yeah, okay, I'll read that. The fear of rejection can be seen in those sitting by themselves, the quiet one at the table, the first one to leave a party. At some point in your life, you have or you will battle with this fear. The lie that you are not wanted is a loud bark by a little dog. Don't you love them little ankle biters? I think if they're going to be that tiny, give them a big roof. Wouldn't you listen? You'll be like, you can only... But that bark scares me. I like that. Anyway, but over and over again, God knows. God knew our human nature. And so over and over again in the word, he says, take courage. Don't fear. I'll be with you. When he called Joshua, remember Joshua's story is he was Moses' aide. They were on the edge of the promised land. Moses dies. Okay, Moses is dead. Now Joshua, Moses' aide. You're going to lead these almost 2 million people into the promised land. Joshua's like, I can't do this. What are, what are you asking? So over and over again, you hear God telling him in chapter 1, over and over again, don't be afraid. Have courage. I will be with you. You're going to do great and mighty things. Don't be frightened. Only be strong and very courageous. And I will be with you wherever you go. He tells us over and over again, as Christians, as little Christ, be strong and courageous. When he called us in Matthew 28, 18 and 19, when Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. He said, and don't worry, surely, not just you, surely, but surely, I am with you always, always to the very end of the age. So you don't have to worry about rejection because when we stand up, when we say, God, I'm stepping out in faith for you, he says, I'll be with you. The Bible says, I'll be your rear guard. So have you seen the movies, the shows where the little guy stands up to the bully and that bully's like, I'm going to eat you for lunch. And then all of a sudden come up behind him as this big guy, arms folded. Really? Doesn't have to say anything. He just stands there. And the bully backs down, okay, okay. And that little guy, that little nerd, he kind of puffs up his chest. That's right, you keep running. Doesn't know all the time the big guy's standing behind him saying, I'll fight for you. 
What was the song we sung this morning? God fights our battles for us. He said, I will be your rear guard. You stand for me and I'll stand with you. With you. The Bible even says that at the end of times when we're standing in the throne room of God, that he'll, God will say, here we are. And he'll say, oh, by the way, that one that you kept running from, look right over there. That's him right over there. And we'll go, you? I was scared of you? You torment you? I believe he's going to be like one of those little ankle biters, but just with a big bark. That we're going to say, really, I could have just, I could have. What? And you? But his bark is bigger than his bite. Because we have the King of Kings standing behind us. Charles Stanley goes on to finish this thought of rejection when he says, When others are cruel and unloving, does their criticism distress you deeply, stirring up painful feelings of worthlessness? Do you ever torment yourself with thoughts such as people don't want me around, don't love me, don't need me? If so, you're wrestling with rejection. So what's the best way to overcome your feelings of rejection? Believe what the scripture says about you. Thank God for who he formed you to be. Affirm the truth with your words. You have to speak them out. Lord, thank you for making me worthy, accepted, competent. Thank you for being with me wherever I go. To Thank you for being my rear guard. Our Heavenly Father never rejects us because of our performance or appearance. When others spurn you, turn immediately to God's waiting arms. His loving kindness endures forever. He will help you rise above rejection. And he alone can infuse you with his strength and courage to face any and all situations with confidence. And fear number four. The fourth fear that seems to stop me from getting involved in the church and doing my part in the body of Christ is the fear of inadequacy. Believe me, no one knows better than me. I'm not educated, trained, or equipped to do anything of any real value. When I feel the pull of God on my heart to take a step of faith, get involved, share my testimony, or lead that ministry, my heart flips over in my chest and I yell back, I can't do that. Someone else is more trained, more educated, more equipped to do that than me. Lacking the quality or quantity required. Insufficient for purpose. You know, I know starting a, a section by giving you the definition is really non-inspired. But I, di- I was like, I want to read what does Google really say that insufficient means. And when I read lacking the quality or quantity required, insufficient for purpose, I mean, I was like, I, okay, I got to share that. I ought to share that because there's something about 
the quality. I can do it. I just might not do it great. I don't really know what I'm doing, but I'm going to try. I was thinking, in my opinion, there's no one in the Bible who lacked in quality and was insufficient for purpose more than Moses. Yep. See what happened with Moses. Right from the beginning, Moses shouldn't even have been alive. Remember at the time the Pharaoh was trying to squash children. Oh, it's getting dark. Sorry. Um, who cares? Um, he was going around killing babies, having his men going and killing babies. And Moses' mom was like, uh-uh, not this baby. So she had the baby, and then he put the baby in the water. And then luckily, someone in Pharaoh's house happened to be on the other side of the river and been like, oh, look at it, free baby. So to start out, Moses really shouldn't even have been alive. And now you're thinking, well, I think that's a great thing because now he's alive. Now he's starting one rung down because now as he's growing up in a household of people who know, oh, we're Pharaoh's family. And now that lady's got a Jewish baby in the castle? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? So now Moses is uh, growing up, being tormented by people who really, it's, it's, almost said something I would have regretted. Hmm. That's maturity. Thank you. I'm here for another couple hours. Thank you. <laughs> he grew up in a place he shouldn't have been with people who knew he shouldn't have been there. When he became a young adult, he then went out and saw his actual people, and then he tried to help. He said, oh, you're beating my people. Well, I'm going to kill this man. He becomes a murderer. And then he hides. He's like, man, well, duh, that's not a good idea. <laughs> i got to hide this guy. So he goes and he hides the guy. He comes back the next day. And now his own people are putting him down. So, oh, look out for Moses. If you argue with Moses, he'll wind up dead. So, so Moses has now killed a dude, hit a dude. And now that all these people are freaking out, he's going to run away. Forty years is what they think he ran away for. Could be a little less, could be a little more. Of course, none of us were there. We don't really remember. He hides away for 40 years. Now, this is not really a man, when you look at his accommodations, that I think would be fitting to lead millions of Israelites. I mean, if I'm the one choosing, Papa, if I'm the one choosing, I'm, not, I'm like, well... I'm going to skip over him. I'm going to skip over him. But here's the thing. In Exodus chapter 3, there's a very important change that happens in Moses' life. That very important change that happens is that he encounters God. Oh, he encounters God. 
like crazy. So he's in hiding. He's thinking, okay, I'm away from all the people. You know, I'm away from my own people who are, you know, ragging on me. I'm away from the people I grew up with who don't even like me. And God seeks him out and finds him. He's just minding his own business. And he comes across this bush. He's like, man, there's a fire started over here. Man, it's going to spread. And all of a sudden he hears God say, whoa, calm yourself. Take your sandals off, bro, because this is holy ground. And he's looking at that bush going, that bush is not burning up. It's been going for 10 minutes straight, and the leaves are getting greener. God then explains to him that he has chosen Moses. In uh, verse chapter 3, verse 10, he says, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Men, you may feel with life swirling around you that you can't cope, that you can't hang, that you can't change anything that's happening, but I say that all of that will change when you have had an encounter with the Most High that is unlike any other. Moses was a murderer. Moses was a coward, but when he was face to face in the presence of God, none of that mattered anymore. You will be called to something. You will be called to someone or you will be called to some place. And without an encounter from the Most High, that will feel impossible. Chapter 4, verse 1. Dang it. Don't you hate it when he gives you this screen? I'm like, no, you was just there. My goodness. Oh, well, praise the Lord for some paper. Oh, it's... It's good now. It's good now. Of course, when I go back. Okay, chapter 4, verse 1. And Moses answered and said to the Lord, in case you're wondering, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they say, Jehovah, he did not appear to you. And Jehovah said unto him, What is that in your hand? And he said, It's my staff. So God said, throw it on the ground. And Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake. And Moses was like, what? That's the Isaiah translation. And then God said, pick it up by its tail. And it became a staff again. And then the Lord said, put your hand in your cloak. I lost it. Darn it. Uh, put your hand in your cloak. And then he put his hand in his cloak. And when he removed it, his hand was full of leprosy. And then he said, okay, put your hand back in your cloak. So he did it. Oh, of course. Again, Isaiah translation. All right. And when Moses pulled his hand back out, he saw that it was just as clean as his face. What did God use? God used what Moses already had in order to complete that which he was called. He said, you don't think that they're going to believe that I called you? You know that stick that you think is so cool that you keep carrying around with you? Throw it on the ground. 
You think that hand that you have with you all the time, put it in your cloak. Do this to them, and oh, they'll believe. And then Moses is like, all right, God, you are being awesome. You are blowing my mind. But God, but God, I mean, I, I'm not an eloquent speaker. I mean, I'm not a good speaker. You know, I can't really flow with the tongues of angels. You know, I can't spit rhymes, Lord. In verse, did it again? You know, uh, continuing on between verses 10 and 17 is when Moses is saying, Lord, I can't speak. I can't do it. The Lord then looks at him and he said, all right, all right. What about your brother Aaron? All right. He's already on his way to you. And he will speak for you and you guys will speak as one voice, my voice. Even with your biggest downfall. Moses was thinking, I can't talk, I stutter, I can't, Lord, oh, Jesus, I can't, I don't know. Even with your biggest downfall, God will provide, because the Bible said that God spoke, He is already on His way. Before Moses had even brought up that, I can't speak. God had sent Aaron to him. See, in your reality, in reality, your fear of inadequacy is really a trust issue. God has called you, men and women. God has called you. But do you trust Him enough to allow Him to use the gifts that He has already given to you? Romans 15.13 I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, the hope that you have that, uh, i got to go through this Sunday school class and lead it, will be a confident hope because you put your trust in the Lord. And the fifth fear is... Fifth fear... The last fear seems to stop me from getting involved in the church, doing my part in the body of Christ. The fear of failure. Seriously, this is the one I fear the most. Failure. All the worst days of my past come to haunt me in one gigantic moment, gripping me with the fear of failing, being a failure. Forget it. Nothing can fix this feeling. Not only do I fear trying something new, I have a history that proves when I I've tried before. It almost always leads to failure. So why keep trying? When Isaiah and I was working on this message, Isaiah, being a man, he said, 
mom, these five fears that dad's laying out is like hurdles. That you come up to the first one. And if that first one hits you and you can't step over it, you're all done. But even if you can muster up the strength and you make it past that first one, then you come up to this next one and you come up, it's always, it's like a progression. And then when I said, well, what about failure? He goes, well, that's it. That's the final one. He says, even if I can pass through every one of them and get by it, he goes, I get face to face with my own failings. Because we've all failed at one time or another. But see, the key is, and I think we've said this before, a not identifying with the issue. Failing doesn't make you a failure. We all fail at something. We've all tried something, hopefully, and it's not worked. And we have to try again. Now, if everyone in history ever hit that roadblock of failing and said, I tried, I failed, I'm done, I'm out. We wouldn't have a history. I mean, and you've heard it before, and let me just take a second and show you here. There are some famous failures. He was cut from his high school basketball team, went home, cried, locked his door, and cried on his bed, little girl. No, he wasn't a little bit. Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan was cut from his own high school basketball team. This man wasn't able to speak until he was almost four years old. And his teacher said over and over to him, you will never amount to anything. Albert Einstein. This lady was demoted from her job as a news anchor because, quote, she is not fit for television. Oprah Winfrey, who has her own television channel. This man was fired from a newspaper for lacking imagination. He has no original ideas. Walt Disney. This man was told by his teachers, you are too Stupid to learn anything. Thomas Edison. These people were rejected by recording studio and said that they don't like their sound and they have absolutely no future in show business. And I even heard that they weren't even able to read music. It was the Beatles. This man's first book was rejected by 27 publishers until he hit the 28th one. It was Dr. Seuss. And this man failed in business, had a nervous breakdown, and was defeated in eight elections before he finally won, and it was Abraham Lincoln. We all have failed at something. If you've never failed at anything, then you've never tried anything new. My favorite book, I've said this before to you, was Failing Forward. I read that about 15 years ago. I think it was when it first came out. Failing Forward by John Maxwell changed my life because I did battle with insecurity. I did battle with 
inadequacy. I did battle with laying my heart out there, being rejected. If I try something and I fail, boom, tattoo it across my forehead. I'm a failure. I'm out. And when I read this book, that I can actually fail forward, it means I'm not going to let those feelings hit me, knock me down, and take me out of the game. I'm going to keep pressing in, kind of like Rocky we talked about last week. Keep getting up, keep going on, failing forward. The description of the book says your perception of and response to failure can either catapult you further or destroy you, but you choose. Failing forward is moving beyond the life-stopping experiences that failure can have on you into the stepping stones of a higher calling by using the lessons you learn from your failures. You can master the fear of failure. You can master the fear of failure. Positive benefits can accompany negative experiences if you have the right attitude. I will not let this stop me. I will keep going. So that one didn't work. So I'll try something else. I remember when God called us into, called me into ministry first, um, and I turned to my new husband at that time, and I, I said, I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. He's like, what kind of pastor? I'm like, I don't know. I think I'm supposed to be a pastor. So I went to the pastor at that time. I said, I think that's what you think is calling me. He's like, oh, well, we need a couple people to do the Bible lesson in the, um, what was it, little kid's room. I'm like, I guess that's calling me. I guess that's it. So I looked at Brian. He goes, I guess he's calling us. I'm like, yeah. So they would give me, a, you know, find this is our lesson, find the story, tell the story, um, and your husband can act out the story. I'm like, okay. And so Brian put these, I'm going there. I'm sorry. He put, we made him a little costume. I can't remember what his name was, but it was some dog name. But he made ear, long ears out of these socks and the little nose. And, you know, we'd do the little, you know, and he would, whoo, 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 you know, whoo, 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 act out. And I would do the Bible lesson. And we tried that for, I don't know how long, month, two months. And we looked at each other and we're like, yeah, that's not it. He's like, no, that's not it. I'm like, okay. So then we'd try something else. We'd try, you know, they stuck me in the nursery. I'm like, that is not it. They stuck me with the missionettes, and me and this little girl got an argue match, and I went, that is not it either. No. But if I would have just given up the first time, I wouldn't be standing here today. If I would have walked out of the nursery and said, God, you must have made a mistake. I might have, must have tuned in to somebody else's frequency that you were calling because this is not what I'm called to do. You just keep going forward. You just keep going forward. You, if that's not it, then try something else. Just keep going. Don't make excuses for your failures either. Men, this is, a, this is a big one for you because pride is attached heavily upon you. And you don't want to admit it failed. I failed at trying blah, blah, blah. 
But you can say, you know what? Tried that, done that, didn't work. I'm going to try this now. Because failing doesn't make you a failure. You have to remember that. You will fail. Count on it. That's what John Maxwell said. You can count on it. Go ahead and say, I am going to fail. But I'm going to fail forward. I'm going to keep going. And it's in God's strength, not in yours. If you are attempting to do something that you can do, where's God needed in that? Once you step out into what only God can do through you, that's where faith and miracles collide. That's where I want to be. But you have to keep going. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 9, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more glad. Who said this? Who, who said this? Who is writing this? Paul. Isn't that what I, Isaiah was just sharing? Paul said this. Paul the one. Paul the one who was the persecutor of all the Christians. You know, the self-condemnation, the, you know, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, I'm nothing. God said, don't worry about that. I'm, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. That is why, for Christ's sake, sake Paul said, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, in continually failing, because for when I am weak, then I am strong. I must be willing to fail to be able to succeed. The parable of the talents in Matthew 25, there was one of the guys when the, the parable says that the king gave three servants different amounts of money. God's given us different things, different resources. He's given you something that I don't have. He's given me something that you don't have. So he's given to each according to they're them anyway. And then he goes away and he says, now let's see what you're going to do with it. Some translations call it a talent. Actually, if you want to think about it, it's the talents God's given us. And he says, now what are you going to do with it? Well, if you remember the story, good things happen with a guy who had a lot. Good things even happen with a guy who had some. But the guy who was only given one thing, Remember, he was scared. The Bible says he was scared. He was afraid. He was fearful of what the king might come back and require of him. So in verse 24, then the man who had received the one bag of gold came and said, Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid. And I went out. You know what he was afraid of? He was afraid of failing and losing that little bit of money he had. So I went out and I hid it in the ground so I could return to you exactly what you gave to me. 